fly by night away, away from here. We can do it. Uh, let's do it again. One, That's the two, hook. three. Fly by, by night, night away from here. I don't think we're in the appropriate key. Yeah, I think this is where we're going to get the cold open shit out. <laughs> Welcome to Backtracking, the show where two old buddies take a second listen to influential bands' catalogs, track by track. I'm Roth Bagdasarian. And I'm Dan Fiden. We're taking this journey together, you and I, and Roth, providing context, both personal and historical, on some legendary bands. For our first season, we've picked none other than Rush. Today on Backtracking, our ship is a coming and we just can't pretend. We're going to fly by night, Rush fans. Rush's sophomore record was released in February of 1975 and was the first album to feature the band's classic lineup with a legendary Neil Peart on the drums. Just two weeks prior to leaving on their first American tour, Getty and Alex made the decision to let go of John Rutsey due to creative differences and diverging ambitions. So they invited five drummers to audition. And as the legend goes, Peart got the job. He sure did, Roth. And with that, generations of air drummers were born. The new lineup headed out on tour supporting Uriah Heep and Manfred Mann until late December of 1974, when they took a break from the road to record their sophomore album. That Terry Brown rejoined the band at Toronto Sound Studios for this one, and it's the first record he'd receive a producer credit for. Mixing was completed in January 1975, and the band was pleased with the results. Unfortunately, the folks at Mercury Records were not. Peart had taken over most of the lyric writing, and the combination of the substantially stranger lyrics and decidedly less commercial songwriting left Mercury execs scratching their heads. Nonetheless, the album was released in early 1975, and the band hit the road, opening up for Kiss and Aerosmith. So you want to know what kind of a world Fly By Night dropped into? Well, still a little nuts. Watergate is happening, and in March, Saigon falls. Turkey invades North Cyprus, and the Khmer Rouge take Cambodia and begin the genocide. Margaret Thatcher is elected. Microsoft is founded. Born to Run, Wish You Were Here, and The Red-Headed Stranger were all released. A bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses sell all their belongings in preparation for their predicted Armageddon at the end of that year. And, apparently unrelated, both Rafi and I are born in Buffalo, New York, to the joy of people everywhere. Here we are. Episode 3... Welcome to it. We're covering Fly By Night, Rush's second studio album released on Valentine's Day, 1975. Roth, what's more romantic than grabbing your honey and putting on Fly By Night? Well, there's something very interesting about this album. So I was alive when it was released. You were not. That's true. That's true. This album was released just about a month before I was born. And about a month after I was born. Amazing. So this is a very unique album. It's like sort of the 
uh, equal distant point between our two births. So um, now I can say unequivocally, I did not listen to this album when it was released. My parents were not Rush fans. Uh, they weren't playing it. But if there was any airplay of any of these tracks on the radio uh, in Buffalo, which is quite possible, um, during the months of February, March, April, or that summer, um, I very well may have heard original airplay of this album, uh, in my infant ears. Amazing. Amazing. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful to speculate about it. I'm doubtful, but we can always dream. All right. You want to dig into the, uh, cover art, Roth? Yes. So the cover art features an owl, uh, on the, <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is correct. I believe that's a snow owl. Is that not a snow owl? Yes. So it is a snow owl, uh, and it was uh, painted by an Italian artist named Araldo Caragatti. Um, so it's, uh, it, it, it evokes the mythic nature of the album where we get to, uh, our first taste of sort of the sprawling prog rock, prog rock epics that Rush has become known for in subsequent albums. So, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I do think this is a notable al album cover for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's the first one with something on it other than the band's name. Okay. So that's a big step in some direction. Number two, as we talked about in the uh, second episode, the one on the eponymous debut album, um, they, they lost the rush logo type. So, so they really go to a very, very plain kind of text treatment. The album name, um, is just below the band name in the same font size, very kind of generic looking text. It's really, the album is all about the painting. Um, now let's get to that painting, Roth. Um, clearly I, I had the same kind of reaction you do. It's a, it's a, it's a dark kind of a foreboding, um, feel, to the record, uh -huh. um, to the, to the, to the record, uh, cover, um, Araldo Caragatti. Uh, I also, um, did a little bit of research onto him. Who is this guy? So most, most famous, his most famous works of art seem to be from what I can tell, I'm no art historian, um, portraits of each of the members of kiss. So apparently there is a series of portraits of the kind of classic kiss lineup that were painted by him that were on, um, a set of kind of album covers, uh, from, you know, the early seventies, um, era of kiss. And then the other portrait that that he's most well known for is a portrait of sandra day o'connor which is oh. actually in the national portrait gallery oh wow next time i'm yeah. in dc i'd have to check that out now we we're, we we back to what we were discussing about the the rush logo right and we yeah. were why did they not use it uh on this album it was actually a decision by the record company to go oh, with, really? yeah to go with a different typeface for the rush uh the the title of the band uh, and it was done without the band's knowledge. So by the time they got it, I mean, they have really, especially for these first few albums, they got really bad karma when it comes to their, um, their album art, like not getting what they exactly wanted. So, so, so you, so they intended to use the logotype from the first record and it was replaced by the, um, replaced with this by the record company that I don't know. Um, unfortunately I don't have Getty Lee or Alex Lifeson's phone number, uh, handy. I could call them, but I, what I do know is that they weren't aware that the, al the, 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 the record label went with a different typeface. The, the presumption is that it was supposed to be their original logo with the bright uh, red font and, you know, the, the, the big sort of curly letters, uh, and the yeah. record company made a decision to, uh, to go with a different font. Well, you know what? I, I would have vastly, uh, uh, 
I would have preferred the original logo type from the first album. And I think the record company, if this is what happened, that uh, the record company made a mistake. The the font choice on here, I think, is really boring and um, not very good. But well, on, if the flip, on the flip side, because we do have to have a little bit of conflict here for there to be a, a, a worthy <laughs> podcast. Uh, I mean, it did free them up to do whatever they wanted later. I mean, for example, the, the you know the subsequent the star man logo with like the rush sort of cursive uh that's uh, that to me is just as iconic if not more so than their original logo font okay well we're gonna have disagreements all all through all through all these podcasts on the cover art and maybe the logo type Roth. yeah i mean it'll be it'll be a small miracle if we make it to the to all albums (laughs) without breaking up so (laughs) um so the um so the uh the so when i actually looked at this portrait um, the thing that it was evocative of for me, and not just kind of the generically foreboding, it specifically reminded me of the first edition advanced Dungeons and Dragons um, cover art for a bunch of their work. There was a there was an artist named David Trampier. I think, mm-hmm. or Trampier, something like that. Um, but he he was one of the classic old school kind of 1970s D&D artists and did modules and kind of most, I, I think most famously did the the um, player's handbook, the original version of the player's handbook. So there's this re- really cool painting of like some kind of big statue and there's like a little guy climbing up onto the statue. It looks like he's going to steal some treasure or something. Mm-hmm. Um but it's a very cool kind of foreboding um, painting. That's what this always reminded me of. Um, and it, I think it, it pretty, you know, at, at least the, thematically, um, I think of early, early D and D when I think of, when I think of this, this album cover specifically. Um, my real question is, is there significance to the fact that it's a snow owl um, is it just meant to represent fly by night um, or is there something else to it? Uh, I mean, there's like a triple entendre there. I mean, it could be a reference to fly by night to buy and the snow dog. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, anyway, cover art. I think this cover art just generally is a big improvement from the first record. I, I like the font treatment, kind of the, the, the treatment of the, the album, name and the band name much worse than the first record but overall i prefer this um this album cover and i do think it is very recognizable but it is also very dated at this point yeah and and as a testament to uh the artist's uh uh breadth and depth as uh, of style uh, if you were to look at the the portrait of uh sandra day o'connor next to the portrait of kiss uh, you'll see that they're very different uh, images. One is of a uh, Supreme Court justice. Another is of a bunch of guys in makeup. So uh, do yourself a favor and, and do that comparison, and you'll see just how vir- um, uh, virtuosic his talent was. <laughs> I I think that I think that maybe uh, this is the most that anybody's ever spoken about this album cover specifically ever. <laughs> so I think we can probably safely move on, Rob. So yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the production of the record. Let's- this the record this is another terry brown um production although he's not listed in the credits as a producer he's listed as an engineer and having done the arrangements with the band yeah and you know what what's interesting about this era of rush too is that i mean they were just pumping out album after out al- i mean they put out two albums in 1975 this and Caris of steel so they were just like writing music going in and recording it 
right? Um, and I mean, compared to the, how long it takes to record an album these days, especially their last couple of albums, it was five years in between the recording of those albums. Um, they were just, you know, on fire. And this was all while they were touring uh, pretty intensely and bringing on a new drummer as well. So I can't imagine, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, how busy and how how productive they were at this time. Uh, and, and, and from all the accounts that I'm aware of, they were doing it without using uppers, right? They were, if anything, they just smoked pot. Now <laughs> there is, I have not finished. I haven't even started the Getty Lee biography, but I, I do did. understand yeah. there is quite a bit of cocaine that uh, is discussed in that, but this is, this is pre-cocaine. Mystery solved that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, clearly, you know, I think that, I think the fact that they did this and caress steel in a single year, I mean, you know, bands these days, these kids are just spoiled farting around all the time. Rush is just in there. 1975 touring, shitting out classics left and right. Well, committed- around this era, the, 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 the rumor, what I understand rush, uh, when they were touring with kiss, it was typically the show would be over. Um, they would all go back to the hotel. Kiss would like party like it's there's no tomorrow. And the guys in Rush, well, the guys in Rush would just like go have a cup of tea and you know read books and whatnot. I don't know how much how much truth there is to that. Uh, Paul Stanley is invariably at the Starbucks right up the street here. So if I see him, I will ask him and I'll get You'll back ask. to you. I'm sure, he'll appreciate that. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. I'm sure he would. I, I, he'd love to talk about Rush. I'm sure. I mean, who doesn't? I will say on a a Paul Stanley side note, I've seen a picture of him recently. I'm not a, I'm not a kiss fan at all, but he has had a lot of plastic surgery done. Has he not? I mean, he has a very strange look at this point. You have have, have no comment on that. You don't want to, you don't want to be on record as mocking. All those guys are weird looking dudes. They're like 1970s rockers. I mean, even, even uh, Getty is. Yeah. Well, um, all right. So Paul Stanley's uh, plastic surgery aside, let's talk about the production, the sound of the record. Um, for me, uh, I absolutely love the sound of this record um, compared to the first record. Mm-hmm. I do think it still sounds um, like it's a small room. I mean, there's not a lot of uh, there, there's not a lot of space, I guess, in the in the recording. But I think that the drums specifically and I'm sure a decent part of it is just the pat- the fact that it's Neil Peart. It may be how he tunes his drums. It, 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 it certainly sounds to me as though they were mic'd and recorded quite a bit differently, but the cymbal sound is much, much different than on the first record. There's a lot more yeah. sustain. Um, but the toms on this record, the Tom toms just sound awesome. I love it. They are, um, it, it's just a kind of a fat, like really great sound um i love 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 the sound of the drums on this record well this, I also, was, this was recorded at toronto sound studios too where they recorded their original album and according to allure it was recorded in five days so i can't you know i'm I'm assuming there was a little bit of of tech work done before the band got in there to like you know test out the drum sounds and and whatnot yeah. but it's uh i mean it's just it's just mind-boggling that they got such a uh, an iconic album out in five days. Yeah. I mean, it really, you know, 
Yeah, it is. And, but, but I, I would say that, that the, the biggest change I think from the first record for me in the, in, in terms of the sound of, of the record is really just the drum sound. It's not just the drumming, it's the drum sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the bass actually sounds a little bit different to me. It sounds like Roth, you're a, a bass player. Um, but I, I don't know how, what, what you describe this as, but there's a, almost a rattle, uh, a rattle of the strings you sometimes hear, um, on basses and, you know, it's kind of most common, I think in like people who play like slap bass and they want a really kind of funky, slappy percussive sound. But I, I feel like they had more of that like rattle in the bass, um, on the first record than they do on this one. You know, I, I don't know the, the actual kit that he used, uh, when he recorded it. Um, but yeah, I just looked it up. It was a Rickenbacker. I was going to say it, it, when you hear like that dirty kind of sound, uh, it's most likely a Rickenbacker. That's just the sound of a Rick. So with the first album, um, I said in the, in the, in, in the previous episode that he most likely used a P or J bass. I still stand by that, even though I'm not entirely sure what he used. Uh, but for this one, he did use a Rickenbacker. In fact, if you look at videos from those early days when they were playing the first live or televised shows, they were playing with Neil Peart. Um, he was using a Rickenbacker on stage in those live performances. So he was using a Rickenbacker 4001 uh, to record the bass on Fly By Night. Cool. And then the guitar sound. I would say that the guitar sound on this record compared to the first record is it to me anyway it sounds much more like the classic later era alex lifeson it's much more washy much more open i love it it's very atmospheric and it's very it just reminds me more of his later playing a lot less crunchy a lot a lot less kind of you know jimmy page riffy type yeah. stuff a lot yeah. more, and, you know, and, and we and we heard some of that on before and after we did discuss that in the previous episode by the way speaking of led zeppelin so i did go back you know i was saying i wasn't a big fan of led zeppelin i did go back and i tried to listen to some led zeppelin uh yeah. I, I enjoy it but you know what i realized what is different about rush from led zeppelin and please led zeppelin fans don't take this the wrong way uh, and if you do take out your ire on Dan, not me, um, is that I, I just feel that Led Zeppelin, phenomenal players. There's no denying their talent, but they just don't have the alchemy that Rush has. And what I mean by that is that there's a sound that Rush has that you just cannot replicate unless you're Rush. Led Zeppelin, you can get some really good players together and do something that sounds a lot like Led Zeppelin. But with Rush, there's just like this alchemy, the way that Neil Peart, Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, all their players playing and their sounds just blend together. Um, and, and it's very distinct by era too. So that's, that's what I realized when I was listening to Zeppelin again, revisiting it. Huh? It's interesting. I, I do think Zeppelin is going to have to be a, a candidate for another, uh, season of, uh, backtracking, but we can talk about that later. So Roth, cool. um, are you ready to dig into the track by track, uh, track by track, listen through? Oh, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, yeah sure. We're do that. All right, so why don't we take a minute, um, go listen to Anthem, which is the opening track off the record, and then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit. Okay. Okay. I want to, I want to say something, get back into this. So, okay. Okay. Now imagine, imagine you like bought Rush's first album 
you listen to it, you're a huge fan, you love them, and you buy their next album. And you might have heard some rumblings or read about, hey, they have a different drummer this time. Because I don't, you know, news didn't travel as fast then. And you go into your room, you light up a J, and you... Um, What's you, a J, Ross? Before we... Can a, we a, a, a joint. Oh, I joined yeah. marijuana cigarette. It's legal okay. now. So, yeah. and, okay. and you, you lay down the stylus on the edge of the record, you're a little crackling. And then all of a sudden you hear Anthem. Like, can you imagine like being just how that must have rocked so many people's worlds? It, it rocked my world. And I just did the, I did everything you just described, except I did it last week and it rocked my world. I will say, all right, first, the basics. Anthem, opening track of the record, four minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, music written by Lee and Lifeson, lyrics by Peart. Okay. What an amazing opening song. And to your point, they couldn't have chosen a song off of this record um, to kind of announce the shift in the band more clearly yeah. than, than this one. I mean, it really, if you listen to the last record, right into this record as though it were a single double album you would just be like oh my god what happened you know well, well and and this is it this heralds in the new sort of literary era of rush right neil peart a, a voracious reader never went to college i don't even know if he graduated high school but a true intellectual true literary um connoisseur and his he, he announces his arrival with a song based on uh the enron novel anthem yeah. So, um, yeah. Why don't we just talk about the lyrics for a second? You've already kind of let us in there. Ayn Rand, um, pen name for a woman named Alice O'Connor, um, uh, who, who grew up, uh, in, you know, was born in kind of Soviet Russia or, or born in Russia, um, and, and was there through, uh, the, the kind of changeover to the, um, to the kind of communist party. Um, so this is one of her earliest, uh, novels. It's kind of a novella. It was published in 1938. Um, and it is, a very, very clear, there are, there are a couple of places we'll get into this on the uh, discussion of the lyrics for this record, but it is Neil Peart at his, you know, most clearly literary wearing his influences directly on his sleeve. He named the song after the record, but he doesn't really talk about the plot of the album at all, at all in this song. He really just kind of evokes what he i think interprets to be the themes of the novella i don't think it's probably worthwhile for us to get into too much of a discussion of ayn rand specifically but clearly you know her writing was really influential on neil at this point in his life um and i think he he really kind of writes this song uh, writes the lyrics to this song to really just kind of call out some of the themes from from the book um, well, well, and I do, th I do think it is, uh, a worthy, uh, a point to make, um, that, you know, Neil Peart, um, is invariably quoted or sort of referenced by, uh, some people who skew politically conservative, uh, not that I want to get into politics too much, but what he, what his politics were, wasn't Republican, Democrat, left or right. It was very much two things. It was very much about self-determinism and anti-authoritarianism. 
right? He was very anti-authoritarian. If you look at what the entire 2112 album is, which also has the song something for nothing, which is a very self-deterministic kind of song. So Anne Rand and the, the, the book Anthem itself and the lyrics to the song are very much about self-determinism and doing things for yourself, right? The sort of what some might call selfishness. And I think that's where a lot of people sort of assume his politics sort of skewed one way or the other. Um, but Neil Peart and the years before he passed away, uh, while he was living here in California, he referred to himself as a bleeding heart libertarian, right? So make of that what you will. I think there's something for everyone in that, but, um, this song really sort of announces, um, you know, his, his thoughts on, uh, you know, you know, individuality and, uh, not so much anti-authoritarianism in this song, but you will start to see those themes a lot in his music. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I do think that, you know, there are periods of time and there are kind of sub, sub, subcultures within um, society bro uh, more broadly where kind of Ayn Rand kind of goes through these 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 mm -hmm. phases of popularity or phases of being, you know, ridiculed right now. I think we're, we're in one where, um, you know, liking of Ayn Rand is generally considered something that's... Um, obnoxious that you know tech tech bros do or whatever i think there's there's a meme out there in society about that i, I think though you really need to i, I don't want to you know get too much into i don't know what neil's politics would have been and i don't want to speculate on that personally i don't know enough about him him personally to to talk about it but i do think that it's important to think about not just her writing but also neil's writing about her writing within the context of the cold war right 1975 was a very different time than 2020 and you know communism was at that point very much um it was not a, a kind of a theoretical thing no. it was it was a system that existed in the world that was uh you know the kind of u.s um our, our kind of biggest geopolitical rival and there was a you know it it was the cold war was about probably lots of things but it was certainly this kind of contest of ideologies in a lot of way and and, and when you think about ayn rand kind of like emigrating from russia you can imagine that, you know, a lot of her writing and views on this is probably influenced by what she saw and experienced as, you know, being very difficult in in Soviet Russia. And, and she just kind of lashed out against that. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't really think is. Mm -hmm. top well, I, I, I do know there's enough about. Well, and I do know enough about his, his politics or the one thing he did not like or appreciate and this is from interviews with getty lee and from neil peart uh that i've read um he did not appreciate people using um his lyrics or his sort of you know his stance on you know self uh uh, uh self-determinism or anti-authority he, he did not like the use of that to support what would be clearly authoritarian candidates uh here in the united states yeah. and abroad so that that's the one thing that i do no, um, as far as his politics, honestly, I, he was probably apolitical. He probably found good things and bad things in everyone, right? I don't think he was a, a cheerleader for any political party at all. Uh, I think some things he was probably very conservative and some things he was very progressive. So, and, and it really doesn't matter, uh, for the music. It, it, cause it's, he's not talking about politics. He's talking about, you know, the spirit of the individual is really what it comes down to. Yeah. 
Well, um, but but I, I, it, there is no question. Kind of in sort of stepping aside from the 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 literary influence of the song, it is just kind of mechanically a much more serious um, <laughs> set of topics that he's dealing with in these lyrics than anything you would find on the first record. Mm-hmm. It is it is not um, personal. It's not emotive. It is really this kind of. Um, in some ways anthem around a set of ideologies that he's he happened to be inspired by well this is his worldview his worldview is books right that's his worldview right i mean he grew up in southern ontario relatively drama free life right and and he finds his escape in reading and like i said he he just is reading all the time right while kiss is out there partying having orgies in their hotel room Uh, i can only assume that's what they were doing uh neil parrot is probably smoking uh, a cigarette having tea and reading ann rand very rock and roll i do think that that the songs um the you know the lyrics to this song there's there can be a a kind of again there can be kind of a reputation that rush has as being overly serious and i think this is one of the types of songs that probably earns them that reputation but i think what you'll see later even as we go on in this record there are a lot of much less serious and even somewhat goofy songs that um exist across their catalog and so there there are different kind of sides and tones to the band well how many Um, bands like you like go rod rod (laughs) right i mean that's not a word that you hear in the in, in the English language very frequently, not in the vernacular, certainly not in rock and roll, but with Rush, you do. So, so let's talk about the music. Um, All right. Rob. Well, now what was your, what was your, I've got some thoughts, but what was your kind of takeaway from this song? Um, listening to it again. Um, it's, it's just like a, a, it's like a kick in the nuts, quite honestly, right. When you turn it on uh, and it's, and it really comes from, from, uh, from Neil's drumming. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, you have to think that they like, they listen to all the tracks and they're like, this has to be the first one. Like, this is the introduction. Hey guys, Neil Parrott is here and we're going to make sure you know it. And I think that's what this song is saying, both lyrically and musically. Yeah. I think that this, um, I, I think the first thing that I would say when you listen to this song is the Zeppelin influence is gone. Mm-hmm. There is nothing about this song that sounds like Led Zeppelin. I think at best, if you wanted to be the most, if if you wanted to be the critic that accuses Rush of being derivative of Led Zeppelin, which I think you, you know, maybe somebody says that really the only thing you could say in this song is that Getty sounds a bit like Robert Plant. But I think mostly all of the similarities to Zeppelin that existed on the first record, the eponymous record are gone and they, they end with this this song and they're much more mature musically lyrically there's a lot of very introspective themes uh, again musically and lyrically more so lyrically and uh and i think that this is uh this is sort of their i don't know if i said this is my phase but this is sort of their adolescence where their you know their voice is changing yeah i mean this is i just think that this this as an album opener is an incredible statement and it really is yeah. a statement the band is changing. I think one of the other things that popped out for me about this song um, is I really like the, the 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 progression of feel through the sections of the song. So there is uh, there's the first section. Um, I don't know what you would call it a pre-verse, but there's a section that comes before the verses, and that's the 
triplet segment. Do 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 It's the 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 section that opens the song, right? Neil is just playing this triplet pattern over everything. It's do 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 do. It's that. You know what I'm talking about? Not really. First section of the song. It is the first section of the song. That's a verse, right? Or are you talking about? Yeah, but it's Okay, so it's but it's the first part of the verse. So they play that, and then that ends, and it gets a little bit looser. And that's when the singing in the verse comes in, but it gets looser. The drum pattern changes and, and Alex's guitar is, is much more, I think he's just arpeggiating like a chord, but it's pretty ringy and open. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in the first he's playing like a a riff, you know, that, that first part of the verse. Um, But that first part is like very tight. It's like a, it's like a knot. It's like rope knotted up and it's just super tight and driving second session, a little looser, Right. And, and Getty's singing and, and the guitar is a little bit more open and the drumming is less busy. And then it goes into the chorus, which is like super loose, right? The drumming goes down to a halftime thing yeah. where it's like, boom, boom, anthem of the heart, anthem of the mind. Right. Um, and, and the guitar is really open and, and it's just the most loose thing. And so as you go through just the sections of the song, there are these big changes in feel from one little section to the next that I just love. It makes the sound of the song so interesting. Um, and especially during the guitar solo, what Neil's doing with the rhythms, it, it's, yeah. it's, I don't know, this, this isn't a shuffle, is it? It's kind of got like a skippy kind of feel to it. I don't know if it's a, if it qualifies as a shuffle, but it almost has like a shuffle kind of feel, which is really, um, uh, I mean, think about it. It opens up with this just driving, like, dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. It's just, just like really driving riff and a lot of syncopation. I mean, you just get like everything. Like, like we said, this is them saying, Hey motherfuckers, this is Neil Peart and don't you yeah. forget it. Right. I yeah. mean, that's what this song is saying. Yeah. It's a, um, it's a, it's a pretty amazing, it's a pretty amazing opener for the record. And it definitely announces that rush is a very different band than, than they were on the, the eponymous record. Yeah. So I, I love this. I think this is one of the, I'm not going to say what I think is the best song on the, on the record, but this is definitely one of the high points. It is. So, so moving to the next song, uh, we should take a listen to this. Uh, it's yeah, called, let's do it. It's called Best I Can. Okay, so before I looked at the, the liner notes for this, um, just by the lyrics alone, I was like, this has to be, and, and from the music, I was like, this could easily have been on the first album. So I'm like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Neil Peart did not write the lyrics. Uh, and sure enough, he didn't. Um, and again, like the first album, a lot of themes of like sort of self-help and, uh, sort of self-affirmation, uh, run wild in this song. So, I mean, like, so, like, listen to some lyrics, like I got an itch into rock, a hate for small talk. I'm funny that way. That's not Neil yeah. Peart. That's Getty Lee. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree, Rafi. So best I can just to, to, you know, three minutes and 25 seconds. It's a quick little, very kind of mainstream rock song. And the lyrics are 100% Getty Lee. This is actually from what I can tell, I, I didn't have a chance to go through every song on every record, but I went all the way through 2112. This is the last song that Getty wrote lyrics on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it may in fact be the last one that he wrote lyrics on through 
you know, the entirety of the Rush catalog. I'm not and what I, that, what I was, like about the lyrics though, and, and the music is that it, it, it's, it's a little self-deprecating. Like they're kind of poking fun at themselves, right? They're not taking themselves too seriously. Whereas, you know, you're talking about how Anthem, you know, the lyrics to Anthem is why some people might think that Rush is like such a serious band. They take themselves too seriously. Well, they should listen to best I can and like, and ask themselves, yeah. like, are they really taking themselves that seriously? And that's where this doesn't rise to the level of pretension, right? Cause I think that when they do aspire to like to, to, you know, when they reach for, I'm using a sort of, uh, I'm paraphrasing something from here. It's, it's not a pun, but they're reaching for the stars. He says, I, I got my sights on the stars. I won't get that far, but when they're reaching, you know, for something beyond, right. I don't think they've ever been pretentious. And what I mean by that is I don't think they've ever reached beyond that, which they were able to, um, to actually deliver on. I think they delivered on everything they reached for. They might not have connected with an audience on everything they, they've done, but I don't think anything they've done has really been pretentious, except for maybe Tyshawn. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> hold your I would disagree. I do think that Rush, I mean, this is a more general comment. I think Rush gets pretentious at times, but I think you kind of, that's kind of what you expect and in some ways want from prog rock generally and from you know bands like rush like you kind of need to be comfortable with an, an amount of you know i don't know um ambition and self-seriousness that's in excess of what you get from a lot of rock and roll but um best i can i you know i would say that I, I completely agree with you, Rafi. I think lyrically, this is very much a song. I think both lyrically and musically, a song that I've got to imagine existed before Neil joined the band and probably maybe was a leftover from the first record. Uh -huh. But like, it really sounds like it's our first, uh, first album um, track. Um, I will say, though, that I don't think the lyrics are good. I don't think Getty is anywhere close to the lyricist that, that Neil was but there are certain turns of phrase in this song that are are better and clever i do think for getty this is a progression there's this line in here that i just think is really just not meaningful but like it's a fun line blankers and boasters all the bluffers and posers and it's just like such a fun kind of tongue twister yeah. Yeah. line with like interesting words and some alliteration it's just like a it's i think it's kind of a fun inter interestingly crafted line and i don't really think i could say that about almost any line on the first record so i don't you know I'm not going to defend this, this, these lyrics, but I do think it's an improvement from the first record. Okay. So you want to talk about the music more specifically? Yeah. I think it's, we both I have talked about it a lot. Like the, the, I think the most notable thing about this song is it feels like a leftover from the first record. Um, maybe a yeah. little bit of an improvement. Certainly maybe the execution of it is a bit better, but from a pure songwriting perspective, it, it feels a little out of place on this record, in my opinion, because it's just stylistically um, different and, and pretty simplistic. Yeah. And I think that this, um, this is Rush having fun. And, you know, you hear it with like little cowbell little riffs in the guitar <laughs> solo too. And it's so funny that you brought up that. That is one of my notes. <laughs> it is such a funny, like basic, pretty basic drum part. And, and I actually feel like Neil 
almost feels like he's restricted on this but there is this goofy pure cowbell like drum fill in it that is just so funny and sticks out so so no, this during that guitar solo especially if you listen it's one of my favorite guitar solos in the early era of rush right really but if you if you if you listen to it it really is like the band discovering wow we can talk to each other musically and we totally understand each other right like that's yeah. that's this this song especially during that guitar solo because there's not much going on musically it's a lot of i, I think a lot of the stuff they were doing in that either was improv or it it was spawned out of improv but it was especially during that guitar solo. if you listen to it 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 really is a, a three-way dialogue between the three guys in the band and and it's a very fluent very fluid dialogue at that yeah. Yeah. You definitely notice in, in across this record, but in a song like this, how musical Neil's fills tend to be in that they really, and I don't know who initiates it. Right. But like he and Getty really tend to almost play the same notes mm -hmm. during his drum fills and stuff. Or like when, when, when Getty's doing a bass fill, it's like pretty common that the drums really almost kind of hit it note for note, which mm -hmm. is, it's surprising how infrequently that's the case in other bands, at least in my opinion. Yeah. They, they, I mean, I mean again, they really yeah. echo each other quite a bit. Again, it comes down to, uh, to alchemy, uh, like, alchemy. It, and, and I hate to beat a dead horse with a stick, but Led Zeppelin really great, but I, they just, they didn't have the alchemy anyway. Well, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I will say though, um, my opinion this is a pretty my opinion is the album would be better without this song on it and it would just be too short an album i i just don't think this is a good enough song for the album i think it sticks out i think it is the weakest track on the record but it's in the second track position same and and we talked about this a lot with the last record the worst song on the album i think is the second track is this going to be a tradition that rush sticks with for like the remainder of their catalog or are they going to bury the stinker and like you know track two i don't know i i i don't know if this is a segue into the third song beneath between and behind but i kind of feel that's the worst song off this Ooh, album. some controversy yeah wow all hey, right why don't listen to it yeah let's listen to it beneath between behind So, uh, do you watch Jackass? I, do I watch show? Jackass? Rafi, I could do backtracking <laughs> Jackass, and I could dissect every sketch in the same way that we're so doing. I, I'm not going to ask you to like light your records. balls on fire, but like, is is the beginning of the song? Doesn't it sound like the Jackass guitar riff? Oh, you know what? Oh my god, I've never noticed that, but it really does actually. Okay, wow, so not that's crazy. Okay. I wonder, yeah, I wonder, I don't know who wrote that jackass song. Um, but you know, that it, do, it does, it is evocative of that. That's interesting, Ross. All right. So anyway, be, beneath between behind three minutes and five seconds, uh, Getty Lee, not credited, uh, as one of the music writers on this it's life sin with the music and pure with the lyrics. Yep. Now, lyrically, I actually think this is one of the songs that is the most interesting on this record. Um, 
And I have to say, I never considered what this song was about until I started doing prep for this. And I really tried to listen and pay attention to it. This song is about America and American decline. Is it like, did you I am almost certain now. I don't know. Right. Like I, I, I have, it's not like I, I was able to channel in the opera 200 years ago defeat. Like, yeah, it was a centennial. Yeah, so, so two, 200 years ago, 10 score years ago, it starts off with, it was written in 75. So that's uh 1775. So around the time of the revolution talks a beneath lot about the noble bird. Wow. Yeah. Beneath the noble, like, I, I think that this is all about kind of the ideals and amazing ideals of America and how it is starting to show decline 200 years later. Earth's um, melting pot and never go. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm learning in real time what the song is about. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, and I just, I, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times I've listened to this song in my life, 8,000 probably. It never occurred to me um, that that's what it was about. Uh, but I, I, I'm pretty certain that's probably what it's about. Well, listen to this line. I mean, talk about, um, you know, prescience. It says the guns replace the plow facades. Oh, sorry. I want <laughs> facades are tarnished now. Yeah. Principles have yeah. been betrayed. So, so again, it's, it's very interesting. Like, is this like a Carter era? I mean, Carter wasn't president then. Uh, it was when, no, well, Carter would have been elected in 76. 76. Right? Yeah. So yeah. this would have been Ford. Yeah. Post Nixon. It could be a response to the, the Watergate scandal. Maybe. I don't know. Or who knows? the assassination. Who knows? But I mean, you know, also, um, it could be a, a Canadian perspective on the whole thing, but in well, any and case, and keep in mind, this was also a few years after the oil crisis too. So the, the so it, it was definitely America during that era was in decline. Uh, and the perception was that it was in deep decline. Yes. So, yeah, th so anyway, it's very interesting. But I mean, just from the just from a lyrical perspective, I think that this is he's talking about something really specifically. He's talking about a you know kind of interesting topic, but he's not talking about it exactly on the nose. You know, I mean, there's a little bit of um, game playing and kind of a, a little bit of ob obfuscation. Maybe not a lot, but it isn't a preachy song but it's clear that he's talking about something in it i just think a really kind of interesting and well executed lyrics in my opinion one well, I, I think i said this in the eras uh podcast episode one um kids listening now you know i've been listening to rush for almost 40 years and like i said earlier like you're constantly seeing new things in their lyrics and hearing new things in their like i've i've never it never I never thought to listen to this song, the lyrics close enough to to understand that. But I think you're absolutely right that this song is about American decline. It's certainly about America. There's no, there's no, nothing else it could be about. Well, listen, if, if, if you, if anybody out there listening knows that I'm wrong or has a different perspective on it, smash that like button, put it in the comments. <laughs> Hit the subscribe and write subscribe, a review. Yeah. Right. You want subscribe to talk and share, share with friends. You, you want to uh, talk about the music? Yeah, the music, is, you know, aside from it sounding like the, the theme from Jackass, which is kind of, <laughs> you know, again, it's very, very poignant that like this is what we've become, Jackass. Um, although you could argue Jackass is high art. It's, it's just a very stilted sounding song. And I think that's why I never really listened to it. I was like, yeah, there's because I listen to music, music first. Like I know a lot of people listen to the vocal melodies and the lyrics first. I actually listen to the music first, and then eventually I'll dive into the lyrics if the music um, uh, inspires me to do so. I think this was one of those instances where the music left me sort of like not really 
caring to dive too deep into the lyrics uh, because it does require some amount of of um contemplation to really understand the lyrics once you see it's a it's like a magic eye this song like once you see it you can't unsee it yeah i um so i i have a i have a i i feel like we have a pretty different perspective on this um on this song roth um i really like this song on re-listen um i like i said before i feel like the album although it would have been a really short album i think it would have been a better album if best i can was not on it and i think beneath between behind would have been a great second track i think that that it has a very interesting and very different kind of a guitar riff than anything that that appears on the first record um and i think if you listen to anthem and then this song in sequence it they both have a similar kind of um attack um and i think thematically if you think about the lyrics to anthem and then you think about the lyrics that we just talked about it is kind of this interesting combo that you'd get between those two so i i really i also just you know talking about the drums i feel like this is this was the most interesting drum part on the record on re-listen for me Anthem is a cool drum part, but I actually think this is a more interesting drum part personally. Um, and, and, and in some ways just as technically kind of challenging as like Anthem would be. Um, I don't know. I, I, I really, I really appreciated the song quite a bit, but my last kind of comment on it musically, and I'd like to hear, you know, what you think about it, the, both this and Anthem, although the kind of the, 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 technical execution of the song is is pretty interesting and maybe a little bit unusual um the song structures are very traditional like this song is verse chorus verse verse yeah verse chorus verse chorus uh solo Solo or bridge chorus you know i mean it's like it's and so is anthem and and i actually kind of we maybe we talk about this more later when we get into by tour um most of the songs structurally are very normal you know mm-hmm. um they're not proggy in any it, it, they're not as proggy as they get right you're not seeing weird time signatures you're not seeing s- weird structures or weird changes in the songs it's actually kind of like pretty standard rock song structure and and it's just the execution of it is quite technical yeah and one thing that we uh we learned from this song is that uh they do not use the oxford comma in their uh in their titles I don't know if the Oxford comma is applies to an ampersand, but it's uh, they're not using one after between. Huh, I for whatever for whatever that's worth. Well, that's a that's a that's a that's a good point, Roth. I'm glad you called that one out. <laughs> well, we we want to be thorough here, right? <laughs> Anything else about the music, or should we move on to Bye Tour, which is not probably really. the most infamous song on this record? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to give Between Beneath uh, Beneath Between and Behind uh, another listen. Uh, with the fresh perspective of knowing what it's uh, about, uh, and you know, it's a, it, and and we'll see if it, it does anything for me. Okay, all right. Well, let's move on to buy tour. So that was buy tour in the snow dog. Now, l- lyrically, this is the Neil Peart having fun it's uh it was it was actually based on uh uh dogs uh rush's manager ray daniels had two dogs um 
and uh you know one of them was sort of like named by uh by someone else on the crew as a biter because he was a biter i guess and that's where Bytor comes and the snow dog is the other dog so he obviously changed the 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 story a little bit because one of them uh is a prince uh, and the other is still a dog so Bytor, by biting people was elevated to the um uh to the to, to the level of prince well i yeah so i i i think that the um i think that the 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 owner of these dogs was daniels their their manager and the story was passed along by one of the stage guys i can't remember who it was but um i i do think that 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 this is a song that is a hallmark of at least early rush in a couple of ways. Like clearly this is the song I, I would argue that, that a lot of people say this is the song that is kind of most indicative of the later progginess of the space kimono era. This is kind of like the fore, forefather of all of that. And uh -huh. I think maybe structurally musically, you can make that argument. It certainly has a lot of kind of fantasy overtones and everything in the lyrics. But the most important thing I think to know about this song is it's just a goofy dorky in joke, you know? And yeah. I do think that this is an example of rush having a sense of humor that maybe isn't immediately obvious to people who aren't kind of deep into rush, but like, you can't say that they take themselves too seriously. They wrote an eight and a half minute song that has lyrics about their manager's dogs and some story that they thought was really funny. Um, and they had and like weird nicknames for each other too, like lurks for Alex Lyson, you know, Alex Lyson's, uh, you know, ovation, like guitar stands were called like the Omega concern. And they'd always thank them in the liner notes and you'd be like, yeah. what the hell's the Omega concern? So they were very playful. And I think this, is um is the first time we're really sort of seeing the fantastic element that would ultimately give way to as you coined the uh space komodos era that's right so now do you want to talk a little bit about the um the music Ralph? well let's talk about the lyrics quickly so neil okay. peart apparently predicts the rise of ethereum in this song it says the sign of f is rising in the air eth so is that something that warrants its own documentary or was it just coincidence uh, i'll leave it to the listener to decide i think i think that unless the listener is on um more drugs than we are or than i am <laughs> if they're on crypto they'll believe it they're they're a uh, they have a penchant for uh for conspiracies so neil peart soothseer so um all right so we're let's move on to the mu the music the the thing that strikes me and has always struck me as weird and awkward about this song is that it drops right into the first verse there's like no intro <laughs> and it is so unusual for that to happen in a song like how many songs can you think of across all of rock music where it's like the verse and the singing of the verse starts like on the first note of the song. But it's, but it, again, I think this is where the music is mirroring literature, right? It's, it's an inciting incident. It just starts with the inciting incident. Right. And, and the music is following the lead of the lyrics the story that Neil wrote. So it's not really a, a song. It's a story. Yeah. Well, you can, you can say that Roth and, and that may make it work for you, but I will say that the thing that does not work for me about this song is that I just think it's awkward. Um, I like the song overall and I, I, I think it's, um, I love it as kind of a, again, a precursor of their real kind of super proggy era, but I do, I've always felt like that was awkward. I felt like, 
I, I would love to know if there's, if there's more to the story around that. Like it, it, it's always felt to me as though either they recorded the song and the whole thing was too long or they were going to record a longer song and they just didn't, you know, they, it was going to be too long for the vinyl or something. They couldn't figure out how to do an intro. So they just dropped into the verse, but like, I, I just, I don't like that. And I, it doesn't, I mean, maybe it's exactly as intended, but it just feels to me like there's, um, it wants some kind of an intro or at least like a run through of the verse, you know, music without the lyrics, um, once, you know what I mean? Like one bar of verse and then you go into the singing or something, but yeah, I, I wonder know, who, I'm they, not rushed. Nobody's asking me. How, how do they start this like live? I got to look up some videos to see like if, if they had like some false starts where like Getty's not singing the right key or whatever. Um, but this is, this is rush flirting with what follows. This is them flirting with Karis of steel and 2112. You can tell if you, if you listen to those albums, which you should, if you're listening to this podcast, um, you can, and you go back and listen to buy turn the snow dog. You're like, okay, I see, I see where they got some inspiration for, you know, like longer songs, like the necromancer or fountain of Lamneth from, from Karis of steel or 2112, which is its own space epic. Um, and, and this is really them. It's, it's sort of like they're dipping their toes in the water and then they yeah. go back to like a song like fly by night, which is a very traditional, you know, straightforward yeah. song. No, I, I would, I, I completely agree with that, but I really do think they're only flirting with it. A, a, you know, again, yeah. as, you re -listen, a, as you re-listen to this song, um, Again, it's a very, it's actually a very straightforward song structure, like nothing unusual about this song with the exception of the fact that once you get into the guitar solo, it's exceptionally long and exceptionally weird, right? There's that like guitar solo. That's basically like the, the, the battle sequence of, yeah. I guess that's a, is that the bass and the guitar making sounds back and forth? Yeah. They probably had flangers and all sorts of like pedal effects on that. I, I don't know. Yeah, whatever it is, there's that section and it, it goes on for a really long time. And then it goes into a very like atmospheric thing that starts at about four, four minutes, 45 seconds. Um, that, that section in and of itself, the pure kind of like volume pedal guitar stuff, um, really reminds me of hemispheres. And then it goes into this great heavy blues section. That's like the the back half of the guitar solo and the battle sequence. Yeah, and if and if if you're worried that um, Rush is going to become a jam band, if you're listening to this album for the first time and you're worried like, oh shit, they're going to become a jam band, don't worry, they never they never became a jam band. But this sort of has smacks of that a little bit. Uh, the section that Dan was talking about, but they but they 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 come back from the edge and and they they become a prog rock band again. Yeah. But I mean, really, even, even though this is kind of this eight, eight and a half minute ish, um, proto prog song for them, it really, other than the length, I don't, I, other than the length and then maybe that one, one weird section in the middle, I, I don't think there's anything particularly interesting about the, the structure of the, of the song. It's a good song. It's a very memorable song. I think it's a pretty fun and funny song. Um, especially if you know kind of what the origins are. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's a good song. I think it's a very interesting song in the development of the band, but I don't think it's one of the strongest songs on the record. No, it, it's fun. It's, it's a, it's, it's historically significant. I'd be curious to see if there was an actual, like a, a story written about by Torn the snow dog. I'm, I'm sure someone is like, yeah, of course, you know, you haven't read it. 
Um, no, I haven't, but I would like to read it. And it's, uh, it, it's fun. It, it's a good middle album. If, if you're not emotionally ready for it or, um, don't care to invest in it, you could always skip over it and go to the next song, which is, which is fly by night. The eponymous, I guess not it the, would title be track. the title oh, track, it's, it's eponymous of the, the name of the album, which is the title track, right? Okay. So fly by night. Let's listen. Rafi, Fly yes, By Night. I'm back. Yes. I just listened to Fly By Night and uh three yeah. minutes and twenty-two seconds of Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson hooks, man. This is a yeah. hooky song. Yeah, this this is arguably like the the it's it's a D chord with like a D G like DG sustain. That's that's the opening chord. That's a D chord. And that sustain like this is like this is the first time we're hearing like quintessential like Alex Lifeson guitar riff, right? And it's a very simple guitar riff, right? It's it's nothing like crazy. In fact, this this song is probably one of the first songs that I learned on guitar, right? The guitar really? riff, yeah. The first huh. the first song I learned on bass before that was actually in the end, which is track eight, which we'll get to. Yeah, well, we'll, um, we'll get to that one. But but it, but it is pretty amazing that, um, and, and this is where I think you can like you know say to people no rush wasn't pretentious is that they've got so many tracks um as virtuosic as they are and were there's so many tracks that like a beginner guitar player drummer bass player can learn how to play um yeah this is yeah i mean i i guess we're already into the music so we'll go back to the lyrics afterwards but why don't we just finish up with the music so the the i agree i think this is a very pop like on re-listen i feel like this is a very poppy song actually and and what struck me about it is i feel as though this is the song on the record that actually points the most clearly to the skinny ties kind of synthesizer eighties era of rush. Yeah. I could totally imagine this song being, I mean, can you imagine like the, you know, signals era rush recording this song again, but in the signals era style of rush, I, I absolutely can. And I think it would not feel all that weird. You know, it, 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 I guess the last thing on the music side that that I'd point out is I really love the bridge in this song. It has that kind of gets real quiet in the in the bridge and and uh, kind of calms down. It gets a little atmospheric, then it punches back into the chorus again. It's a really nice little moment in the song. But overall, I just think this is a an exceptionally poppy song. It's like very accessible. There's a reason that you know this is the this is the hook that a lot of people who aren't big rush fans they can you know a lot of people can sing this hook from this song so so lyrically i kind of see this album being related um in in terms of its writing it's in how introspective it is is uh to spirit of radio right and what was the inspiration for this song was when neil parrott before he played with rush he went to uh he flew to london to try and make it in london as a drummer um, and this was him recounting his uh, his flight, his his red eye flight from Toronto to London. Um, and you know, as talented as he was, 
uh, you can hear all of the sort of, you know, apprehension in this big decision that he's making. He's leaving his family. He's leaving his homeland. He's going to the strange foreign land to try and make it wondering if he will, uh, be able to do it. And, and it's, it really gets into the sort of psychology of someone who's driven. And, and this is a common theme in rush songs, right? Um, uh, there's a lot of, what's that song off of hold your fire? Um, we'll we'll get to them when we get to them but there are a lot of songs in rush's catalog which are about taking big bold bets um having to do something because you're driven by this flame inside of you right and i think that's where actually what hold your fire ultimately the album title comes from but this is him you know sort of expressing his apprehension excitement to make this major change in his life to go to some foreign land to to try and make it as a musician yeah, I think that this is a uh, lyrically this is um uh a good example of Neil Peart being actually very simple, um direct in his lyrics, um but it's very personal and it and it I think is super evocative of that, you know, y- you've talked about the topic Roth. This is this is Neil kind of leaving Canada to go to London to do something musically when he's, you know, young, 20 years old, 21 years old, something like that. And it's surprising how he's so candid, right? I mean, the, the song Limelight, there's a line, I can't pretend a stranger's a long-awaited friend. He's he was notoriously private and socially awkward. Like he did not like to meet people. That's why it's always Getty and Alex in interviews and you know, anyone who's gone backstage, you're more likely to have interfaced with Getty and Alex than Neil. Um, but when he does reveal himself, he really reveals himself. Well, I just think that um, in this, I think that this song, it's simple, it's personal, direct, and it is relatable. You know, I think a lot of people have been 21 years old and really excited about doing something that's going to upend their life. And I think this song is is fundamentally about this recognition that something that, you know, wherever the narrator, in this case, I guess we're assuming, you know, the narrator is Neil himself, um, wherever this person was in their life and whatever was going on, he kind of talks in here pretty consistently about it's not going to happen for me here. So I'm throwing everything up in the air. I'm taking a chance and I'm going someplace. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about that, that agency that I'm demonstrating and this moment of opportunity and kind of the unknown ahead of me. Um, I think, you know, I remember Roth when we were just youngsters, you know, when we were in Buffalo, we would always talk about, yeah, someday we're going to go to LA and be in a band and all this stuff. And I remember one day we were, it was not, it was not a particularly good band and it wasn't a great gig, but I remember standing with you on the sunset strip and being like, I can't believe we're about to play a gig on the sunset strip. And it really was like, for me, I, 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 that reminds me almost of the way that Neil must have felt when he was like on the plane on his way to London to go do what he was doing. Right. It's well, that think about it. He was, he was selling auto parts at his like dad's auto parts shop in uh, St. Catharines, which isn't far from Buffalo. I mean, you could get to St. Catharines in like 20, oh, 30 minutes, maybe. Um, and, and having these grand sort of ambitions to, to make it now. And, and, and again, context Toronto at the time, was not a very uh, metropolitan city. I think even like at that era, like Buffalo was considered like the big city across Lake Ontario from from uh, from Toronto, right? So Toronto really, it wasn't until like the 80s, early 90s where it really sort of became a major 
force into itself on the global stage um especially the mid 90s music in toronto was a was a renaissance but back then he you know it's interesting he went to london was it because he was a royal subject and he could just very easily move there i don't know i don't know how canadian immigration works why not new yeah, york i don't right why i actually don't know the story of even what what band he was joining there or what he was going to do musically i just have uh, you know i've heard i think the same thing that you have this song was written about a a, a trip that he took to to london to to do something you know to try and have some kind of a break yeah and it's just interesting that he went there i mean at the same time you had paul schaefer was going to new york right so there were other canadian musicians that were going to new york david foster was so it's weird um that neil uh went to london well well that maybe maybe some mysteries aren't meant to be solved Ralph. yeah on that note do you want to move on to making memories yes so the next song is called as dan said <laughs> making memories let's take a listen All right, making memories, Roth. Three minutes. Music by Lee and Lifeson. Lyrics by Pierre. Now, I'm going to start off a little bit with the lyrics, and I have a question for you that's pretty important. Neil Peart wrote these lyrics. Okay, he also purportedly joined the band a week before they went on tour. When before they were ready to go on tour, I don't know. I don't know when this record was recorded within that whole sequence of events. But the question that I had when I listened to these lyrics is, okay, Neil wrote these lyrics. Had he even ever been on the road at that point? Does he know anything about road life or does he have any memories of being on the road? Cause this, 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 these lyrics are definitely written from the perspective of like the, you know, the seasoned road warrior who's been in, you know, seen a million faces and rocked them all. But like, <laughs> I, I was just wondering, had, had Neil even ever done that at this point? Uh, you know, they probably had only seen like 10,000 faces by this time or a hundred thousand faces. Uh, it's interesting because the lyrics are the most like non, uh, characteristic of Neil Peart lyrics of yeah. any Neil Peart lyrics on any Rush album, right? They're very, they're, they're like borderline Getty. I, I'm wondering if like Getty and Neil wrote them together. Maybe it could have, could have been that. I don't know, um, it I don't know but I had the exact, I had the exact same comment, Roth. I said, this, this really just sounds like Neil doing Getty lyrics. Yeah, yes. Uh, it, I almost feel, I almost feel like, like Neil was like, you know, I, I these guys don't know it, but I can write, let me write something that's kind of like what they've written in the past. And that's what I'll give them as my first song. So maybe that's what was going on in his head. Um, yeah. but it's, it's, it's also, if you look at it, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's it's very 70s this song like and, and i hate to go into the music prematurely but it no, is I, i'm done with lyrics you want to move oh, yeah there's that? not much to to, to yeah. talk about right um but musically it's it kind of has that like it's i i hate to say it this way but it kind of has like, like that mid 70s kind of cannonball yes. run country twangy kind of you yes. know eagles which is and when you say cannonball run you mean great yeah. Well, <laughs> what I mean by that is for, for those kids that weren't around back then in the seventies, uh, in, in popular culture, um, uh, rural culture was way more celebrated than it is today, right? All over the TV, you had like the Dukes of Hazard, Cannonball Run, like there was always car crashes. There was always like, you know, yokels and 
Texas cowboy hats and stuff like that. Um, it was much more prominent and, in music, right. Especially like Eagle style music, even though the Eagles were a very LA band, uh, had a very folksy kind of feel to it in the seventies. And I think well, this yeah. was Rush's attempt to, 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 or it, it was, I don't know if it was a conscious attempt to be like that, or it was just, they were um, just being influenced it, by that. They were just being influenced by it subconsciously or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, listen, there are some, I think, you know, some some bands that I I personally really love from that era. Um, Flying Burrito Brothers, right? Kind of Graham Parsons type stuff that is, you know, kind of the first wave of country rock, um, country rock mixed. And, you know, the Eagles are certainly kind of part of that. I think that there Laurel are a lot Canyon of bands rock. in that. Laurel yeah, Canyon, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I love that kind of stuff. I think the things about this, the things in this song that give it that feel number one, definitely it's this acoustic guitar. This is an acoustic guitar driven song. It's the first time you've heard that across everything up to this point in their catalog. I believe, I don't think there's any other jangly acoustic playing on the, I don't think there's any uh, uh, jangly acoustic playing on the first record at all. And I'm pretty certain there's nothing before and there's nothing like that uh, earlier on this record. And then the second yeah. thing, also a guitar thing here, um, the guitar solo comes in, it's a slide guitar solo, right? Um, so it's electric and it's such a cool guitar solo, but totally different than I think anything on the rest of the, in the rest of the rush catalog, I can't think of a single slide guitar solo anywhere in their catalog, except on this song. Yeah. And, and again, that, that speaks to what I was saying earlier about it being sort of that folksy kind of country rock uh, influence that, that you just couldn't escape at the time. And, and, you know, we did talk about Rush's influences to some degree in the previous two episodes. Um, they never, they never would be like, Oh, you know, people are doing disco. So let's do disco. Like there's, there's not that one-to-one, um, sort of translation between what they were listening to, to in their music. So it was always obfuscated by their own musicianship their own lyrical capabilities and i think this is an example of where it's shining through a little bit more than it typically does um, yeah and i think that's where the song came from it could also be what, what what made it get to that point and this is just a theory is i know we were kind of joking about it but it could have been like just neil's more self-conscious early efforts to contribute to the band right? yeah that I, I so this is a, a a broader topic and maybe we can do some kind of a a secret extra episode where we do this sometime. But as I listened to this song, I was like, gosh, you know, I think I could re I, I think it would be a fun exercise to resequence the first record and the second record and to move making memories and um and best I can onto the first record and then take a couple of those more proggy, interesting songs from the first record and move them on to fly by night. And mm-hmm. I actually think you'd end up with a, with two more cohesive records from a songwriting perspective, obviously yeah. the performance and in particular Neil Peart would make it feel a little disjointed and weird, but I guess I, I bring that up to say, I feel like making memories is a pretty good and pretty yeah, solid yeah. song. I actually love the fact that they went to like this jangly acoustic and did that flavor. I think it's just so unique for rush, but I also feel like it doesn't hold together with the bulk of this record as, as well. That's really interesting. And like the thought of like making like new rush albums based on like disparate songs. Another thing we could do is have a mock conversation where I'm like Getty and you're Neil and I could say, Hey Neil, what's this song about? You want some pasta? (laughs) 
I'm not into LARPing rush Roth, not interested. <laughs> um, okay. So you want to move on to Rivendell. This is a, I, I think this is in another, uh, another really interesting song um, that, that it'll be fun to talk about. Sunlight dances through the leaves, soft winds stir sighing trees, lying in the warm grass, feel the sun upon your face. Okay, thou shalt have listened to thine song Rivendell. I'm trying Sunlight to get the midnight dances through the trees. I so okay, I really like this song. And this is like a yeah, farewell to King song. Like if we made up an album, this would go on farewell to Kings. Listen, I think you've got to. I know you're gonna hate it. We're gonna talk about Led Zeppelin though. I'm not gonna say that this is a Led Zeppelin influence, but this is a Tolkien song. Mm-hmm. Now I'll talk about some ways that I think it's Tolkien Miller. inspired, but like yeah. clearly. Neil is is wearing his influence on his sleeve. He named the song Rivendell. So like clearly he is like not afraid of us knowing that he's talking about Tolkien here. Mm-hmm. And it's way, way out of the curve, by the way. N- well, Misty Mountain Hop Roth came out in nineteen seventy one. Was that Tolkien too? I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, Misty Mountain Hop is a is a Tolkien song. So um the Misty Mountains uh from The Hobbit, right? Yeah. So um So thematically, lyrically very similar to Led Zeppelin. Okay. Very simple. But, but I think that, um, uh, like, so I think you've got to start by talking about these lyrics, by acknowledging that he is being influenced by Tolkien. He's wearing the influence on his sleeve. That said, for all the years that I listened to this song, and even when I read the lyrics much more clearly, there are a couple of places where it's clearly about like, you know, Tolkien, he says, El- he used the word Elvin in the lyrics at one point, but it always felt to me much more generic, like a very pretty summer afternoon feeling yeah. song. You know, it, it reminds me of kind of being 16 and it's in the middle of summer. It's maybe three in the afternoon and hot out and you're just kind of chilling and maybe falling asleep, you know? That's what this song and, reminds you of? Yeah, totally. I don't For know me, it's why. The opposite. It it's like, has. it's like, it's like, Last week of December, uh, gets oh, dark wow. at four thirty. It's snowing outside. <laughs> this is what the song evokes for me. Oh wow! Interesting. Wow, more totally we should we should dig into that. But what it doesn't <laughs> evoke for me is the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. I mean, I, I don't feel like this is a song about those books. It's more a song about the feeling that he imagined the characters in the book have when they're at Rivendell, which is this very kind of like safe, comfortable home. Yeah. This is, you know what I mean? There's this Place like, you can escape the world where the dark Lord cannot go. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very wistful and romantic song. Um, and, and, and so lyrically, although it is clearly about like, you know, Tolkien and stuff, it is not that this, the, the bulk of the lyrics, I don't think are overwhelmingly, you know, um, actively about like retelling some story from the book or anything. It's, I think that's really more a launching, uh, jumping off point than anything else. But, but what, what is really amazing about this song, cause it's a great song, right? What's amazing about this song is that you got a, a, an album, more than an albums of uh, and a half of Rush that you would have heard before you heard this song. And they're rocking, they're, you know, they're, you know, singing about their 
their foibles and their <laughs> being self-conscious and Anne Rand. So when you get to this song, this is the first time they really like <laughs> let their proverbial and literal hair down. But they like it's it's completely different than anything we've ever heard from them before. But it yeah. works really well. Like the vocals, the lyrics, the guitar. And there's no drums in this, right? Yeah, At there's all. no drums. So let's dig into the music. I think, Roth, you hit on it. The, I think the most important thing to really point out musically about this song is I believe this is the first ballad, real ballad, in their catalog up to this point. It's like a tone right. poem. Like, I don't even call it a ballad. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know that I'd come so far as to call it a tone <laughs> poem, but, but, but it is a downbeat song. It's very kind but of it's happy though. It's not, it's, it's downbeat, but not sad. It's very, yeah, I don't mean, I don't mean lyrically, yeah. I don't mean lyrically downbeat. I, I really mean just literally it's like a slower, you know, song. Yeah. It's, it's a slow, quiet, um, kind of contemplative song. Um, and I think the other thing that's really interesting about this song it is it, certainly the first time in Russia's catalog up to this point that Getty sings this way, very sweetly with yeah. no edge, kind of choir boy singing. And I don't really remember too many songs after this where he does that. Even in much later eras of Rush, uh, uh, the tone of his voice here is like, very clean and yeah. like there's no edge to it. It's really like like choral singing. Especially when he gets up into the higher registers. Place yeah. you can escape the world where the dark lord can be found. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I That's mean my it's, getting lead, by the way. Here, it is so high, right? I mean his yeah. voice there is so high, but he is not he's not shrieking. He's not like there's no yelling or edge in his voice at all. It's all kind of like um, really quite clean. So I think it's, it's interesting in a couple of different ways, right? This is a big departure for the band compared to everything anybody, anybody's ever listened to from them on the, you know, the records up to this point. Um, but I think to your point, in my mind, it works really well. It's a very sweet song, quite Baroque in some ways, but, um, yeah. Well, and I it, think this really illustrates how like Getty and Alex really get Neil Peart's lyrics, right? Cause the music is very flowing. It picks up there are like quick, you know, tempo uh, adjustments up and then that slows down. And it, I love just, that. it is totally I love that following. Technology. It's following the story, following the lyrics. And I think that's why Neil's like, you know, fuck it guys. I'm not even going to play drums on this. I, I, yeah. I've said what I have to say and, and think about its placement in the album too. It's a penultimate song, right? It is before it in is. the end. And I don't want to go to any, in the end right now, but it's like, I think it's like perfectly placed. I think it's, I no, I think this is one of the high points of the record. And I think it's mm -hmm. a very interesting track, which is but interesting because I'll oh, go ahead. Sorry. Do you want to go to in the end or do you want to stick with this one for a couple? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say this about it. You know, it, it's funny that you say it's the high point of the album and it really is. It's one of the high points of the album. Well, when, <laughs> well, it, it's, 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 it's like, it's, you know, in any good story, right? In any good story, there's tension that's built like right before, you know, we talked about the inciting incident being Anthem, like right when you go into like that first song, boom, like a kick in the nuts. Yeah. And here you have the penultimate song, which is sort of the tension, the calm before the storm, like it's before the resolution, not necessarily a storm is going to be coming, yeah. but before the, the emotional, you know, reconciliation of the entire album, you have this song and it's like, it, it's like, it's like if this was a movie, like you'd want that kind of feeling, that kind of moment before the climax yeah. of the movie. And then we move on from Rivendell to In the End. 
in the so, end, Rob. I cannot wait to listen to this one. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's listen. In the end by Rush off of Fly by Night. I can see what you mean. It just takes me longer, my bro. So, so we, so they, they end the album with, well, I mean, it's literally called in the end. So they're not talking about in the butt, Roth. They're talking about in the end at the conclusion. So you, you would not be faulted if you thought that, you know, after getting this album that rush was like saying, okay, we're, we're done. We're just a two album band and we're going to pack it up. Right. <laughs> Cause that's kind of what this, uh, this, this song, uh, sort of implies now it's just Alex and Getty. Neil didn't write this. And I think this is some of the most mature writing. He wrote the lyrics. What was that? He wrote the lyrics, didn't he? Did, did he? I mean, the credits are only Alex. It's Lee and Lifeson. Uh, let me look. I am looking on the we're looking up in real time. We're Even we don't know right everything now. about Rush. Okay, you know what? You're right. You are right, and I apologize, Roth. I have it wrong in my notes. That is that is an incredibly interesting twist. Yeah, because it's like it's very like it's it's very Peartish. Like so, it's, it's yeah. If Neil Peart was reaching down for uh, for Getty and Alex, like like to for making memories, right? This yeah. is like Getty and Lee saying, Neil, you've elevated us. Like we're learning yeah. what it is to write. <laughs> You know, that's really funny. I I feel like such a schmuck that I didn't realize that Neil didn't write the lyrics here, but um, I did, I do in my notes, I feel like there's a really, what I said is I think there are really, there's a really interesting shift in the lyrics here. These feel like to me, in some ways, the most personal lyrics on the album, they're about the least meaning. I really don't think they're talking about, it doesn't feel to me as though the lyricist is talking about something specific. It's really more of a set of feelings, but the feelings come across very honestly and genuinely to me. So I don't come away from this song having any sense of what it is they're talking about other than this like general sense of how it feels to be in a certain kind of relationship and how you can feel relative to the other person in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really like the, the, the lyrics in this song. And again, it's like, it's like the perfect, song at, like for the last song it's kind of like the exit music for a movie right i mean right. it really is i though. want you to stop I, I want you to stop right there can we move on to the music on that topic where you said yeah that's music? so it, it's like the exit music to a movie which was called fly by night and it's kind of like you know the end of revenge of the nerds when you hear queens we are the champions <laughs> like that's Dude. kind of the vibe of this song is like you're like you're, you're like you just had this experience of listening to the album and that's one of the other things about rush in general is that like it really is worth it to listen to albums start to finish like it's yeah. not it, no, you, you can, you can pick it. and choose if you want to hear one song here and there but there's absolutely um a cohesion to their 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 albums that's worth experiencing from start to finish 
And with this one in the end, you know, it does have that feeling of, okay, we're closing the book on this story figuratively and potentially literally, right. We're closing the book on this and we're moving on. What's what's next in store for us. Roth, I, uh, you, when you were, when you kind of moved into the music, you said exit music from uh film, which is the name of a Radiohead song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, the, in my, and, and I actually called you or texted you a couple of times while I was listening to this record recently. And, and I just said, I think in the end is one of the great album closing songs ever. I think when you, when you consume an album, as you're saying, as a single kind of work of art, listening to the tracks and sequence and, and, you know, assuming that the band tracked the record intentionally, like they, they made some real creative choices about how they were going to sequence the songs. Um, I really think that kind of a closing track on an album is a really important choice. Yeah. This song closing this record, I think is incredibly strong in the same way. I think Radiohead is one of the great album sequencing bands ever and i think they have some absolutely amazing album closing songs motion picture motion picture soundtrack off kid a i don't know if you remember the album kid a but the last song on it is motion picture soundtrack and it is another of the great great album closers but i think this is i think this song is just amazing it's um, everything it, it's the tone. It comes down to even after the song is finished, there's a cymbal swell uh-huh. after the song. Like even that little touch just punctuates the end of the album perfectly. And I think the tone of the song, like it's upbeat and hopeful, but kind of wistful and maybe a little melancholic. Like it has this, it's very emotive. I think this song, um, I well, just and I, li- and I like how they have the, the they speed up the tape to get it out of the acoustic section into the rock section. Now, speaking of of Radiohead, were you there at the silent movie theater with the listening party for Kid A yes. before it was really? Yeah, so you were yes. there. Okay, so we were yes. you would have been there with me. So in yes. and, and Bridget and Chris, yeah, I think from yes. uh, from the bridge, um, and that was a listening. I may have been on drugs, maybe, but remember they lowered the lights. It was at the silent movie theater yeah. in L.A. on Fairfax and. No one had heard this before. It was a listening party pre-release, like the record company was 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 hosting it. And yeah. I remember when when that when it started, like yeah. you, like it was one of those moments in the moment you're like, yeah. holy shit, like we're yep. listening to something, we're listening to history in the making, right? You could yeah. tell that. Um when that's like the second experience that I shared with you. The other one was Jeff Buckley at the music hall in Toronto. Right. True. It's true. Well, uh, listen, sorry. radio, maybe we do backtracking Radiohead. That's another good one that we could do, but I just wanted to, 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 to connect it because I do, I do think that ending an album on a certain kind of track is when you consume the album in sequence, it's like a very important creative choice by the band. And in this one, I think it is like one of the great album closers ever. Um, the other thing I'd kind of say about this song and I'd love to hear if you think that this is bullshit or not. But as I listened to it, I was like, God, this is at the end of the day, this is a power ballad. This is like very evocative of the kind of power ballads that 80s hair metal bands would 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 play. Like, I'm not saying that the, the production is different. Certainly, you know what I mean? Like your guitar sounds and stuff like that are a little bit different. But I uh, like at the end of the day, I think that this song is 
basically a kind of a quiet, loud power ballad. This is don't know what you got until it's gone. Every rose is its thorn. You know what I mean? I think there's a lot in common with those songs. And I'm not saying that derisionally, by the way, I love those kinds of songs. No, it's funny you say that. Cause I was going to say, yeah, but it's elevated because it's rush. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, unless you happen to be a Cinderella super fan, in which case maybe you'd say Cinderella is elevated because it's Cinderella. I, I certainly really like this. I think the execution of the song is really good. But just structurally, I think that's the way to think about it. You know, the but only power ballad I can think of off the top of my head from that era, from like a, I, I hesitate to call them a hair metal band, but is To Be With You by Mr. Big. Like it still holds up. Like you don't listen um, to that and think like, oh my God, what were they thinking? But like every rose. Kinda, no, that's not the kind of power ballad I'm talking about. I'm talking about Wanted, Dead or Alive, Every Rose. Oh, okay, okay. You know, these are songs that generally they'll start with like, maybe a little acoustic intro, really memorable hooks, right? The uh, song is quiet. And then at some point it kicks in, you know what I mean? The distorted car, the guitar comes in. The, the, the tempo is still, is still slow and it's still like a ballad tempo and the, and the melody tends to be kind of a ballady melody, but the, the, it goes from like quiet, it's like quiet to loud, you know what I mean? Like, like soft to heavy. Uh -huh. Whereas like much later on, you hear about these like kind of post-punk bands that do kind of like quiet, loud, quiet. Um, the, the kind of core mid eighties power ballads, I just think of as, you know, no, no this is a, a, a random loose end, but it's related to what you're saying. Do those Chicago power ballads count? Cause like Chicago was okay, notorious. So like, well, cause they would have a song where it's like, a ballad 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 and then at the end it's like kind of like it's like it's like they have to have that like testosterone like, yeah. i can't think of i can't you'd have to give me the name of a song i'm not an expert on chicago you mean the band chicago right the band chicago yeah, yeah. like uh, there's no. so many songs where they'll be like like love songs and then yeah. they'll have like some weird like ja, 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 ja. like they'll, they'll yeah. just completely it switch gears with no cohesion at all yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th there are certainly l l lots of songs like that prior to the mid eighties hair battle stuff. Um, th there's uh, the, um, it, there are a lot of them in the seventies as well, but I think that in, in the, in the early eighties, mid eighties, it almost became a cottage industry. Like every one of these kind of generic hair metal bands had yeah. one of these songs, you know, 18 in life you got it like from skid row you know what i mean like there are just so song, many of yeah. them and, and they all have kind of the same the same template there's really just nothing different about them and and i and i just when i was listening to this i was like gosh like structurally this is kind of one of those songs you know um but, and and for me that's a good thing uh, you know for some people maybe that's an insult but for me i think that's a good thing yeah, and I also and love the guitar and the second verse of this song. So as soon as it starts to kick in, you have the first verse where it's like, you know, basically no drums kind of, uh, I don't remember if it's an acoustic guitar, but it's very, it's very soft. And then, and then the second time through the verse, Alex does this kind of behind Getty singing. You know what I mean? It's like some kind of high pitched little chord that he's playing again and again. Um, Anyway, very cool. Probably a suspended chord of some sort, which Alex just was the master of. Well, um, I, I, um, I, I know I got a little excited about this one. I really love this song. I think it's a great song. I think it's yeah. a great end to this record. Um, 
So, yeah, so what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite track? If you had to pick one off of Fly By Night. All right, so we're 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 coming in for a landing here. All right, if we're we're coming in for a landing <laughs> after Fly By Night, my okay, the worst song on the record, in my opinion, Roth, worst song, best I can. Okay. What about you? I'm I'm gonna agree with you on that. I wasn't gonna say beneath between behind, but you 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 know now that I know what it's about, I'm I'm actually yeah. I have more affection for that song. You're, you're um, so yeah, I, I would say I would say best I can is uh, would be the the one that I could do without off of this. Okay, so what do you think the high point of the record is? Huh. You know what? Um, it's like trying to choose which of your favorite. It's Sophie's it's choice. Between, it's between three songs, right? It's uh, okay. What are the three? I want to hear what the three are for you. I would say it might even be four. Yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> it's either it's either in the end, Rivendell or Fly by Night. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Like All honestly, right, well, like, Rivendell is, is. is up there. Um, I I would say you know, and again, I uh, I think I did this with the first album too, but sometimes the marquee track is the best one and i i actually like fly by night i think if there's one song off of fly by night that you'd listen to um or that i would play over and over again it would probably be fly by night yeah i'm actually gonna say anthem is my favorite on this record that was the fourth one yeah it it is just such a it's such a huge step forward for the band i think for what it is the execution of it is just awesome and i feel like it really on re-listen for me if i had to kind of say like what is it about rush that you love as they move through this era and into the next era like what song kind of is most representative of of the parts of rush that you love for me it's anthem yeah, I you know I I I see. So your response was much more like cerebral. Mine was more emotional. So uh, there you have it, folks. If you're hey, as if we're going to talk about in hemispheres, Roth. You know, okay, sometimes it's, it's the right brain, sometimes it's the left brain. There's space for both. Yeah, it's about to get real. Um, I mean, Curse of Steel, as as I said, in my eras, I, I see that as sort of being halfway through that album. Um, <laughs> being the departure point, so it's going to start to get really interesting with Curse of Steel. Yeah. Um, do you call it caress of steel or caress of steel? I say caress of steel, but I think yeah. the only thing that we can do here is ask the listeners to smash that like bus button. <laughs> Tell us, <laughs> leave, leave us the correct pronunciation in the comments. And is it Caribbean or Carib- Caribbean? <laughs> um, I, so I say Caribbean, but Caribbean I queen. Oh yeah, that's it. Caribbean. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably the, the reason why I say it Caribbean. So when you say like Pirates of the Caribbean, do you say Pirates of the Caribbean or Pirates of the Caribbean? I go either way, man. I'm ACDC. You're flexible that way. (laughs) um, So listen, thank you all for listening. That was super fun for Roth and I. And if you want to be cool, if you want your your friends to think you're cool, share this with them. Because they're going to be like, wow, I didn't realize you were so cool that you listened to the Backtracking Podcast, The Rush Series. I know. Maybe when you're, you know, on the bus going to work and someone sees that you've got your headphones on and you have the face of someone who's absolutely delighted and engaged, you know, they say, Hey, what are you listening to? Oh man, I just found this awesome podcast called Backtracking. Let me send you a link. You can, you can cut, I don't know. If you don't know how to share a link on the internets, like you're probably not listening to this. So, well, uh, you're probably not listening to this anyway. Let's be honest, but. Anyway, if you are, please share it. Listen, Roth, I had fun this week. Next week, Caress of Steel. Amazing. 
As always, thank you for listening to the Backtracking Podcast, Rush Edition. Dan, why don't you tell the folks where they can find us online? Folks, you can find us online at Instagram or X. Our handle, our username is at Backtracking Rocks, R-O-X. That's at Backtracking Rocks. We want to hear from you, so follow. Send us a message with a correction, a request, or just some kind of love poem. And spread the word. 